You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. I just uh, I just saw a graphic showing Pro Tour number one and someone saying Pro Tour one is basically a living legend format because what 200 plus of the decks played at PT1 and now uh, living legend Brennan. Isn't that mm. an interesting stat for you? Well, it's pretty interesting too when you think towards San Jose and Worlds. Not only Briar, very likely to be living legend, but um, specifically Rosetta Thorn, which is going to have a massive impact on Viserai as well. Uh, so we're already seeing the ripples of the you know this potential future meta in the, the recent Battle Hard, which now we're going to talk about where we saw no aggro decks actually in the top eight. So I'm I'm not too sure if it's a uh, if it's a little early for the for the narrative to have turned the corner so quick, but we'll dive into it. I'm sure. Well, well, guess what? The uh, the fourth most played deck at Pro Tour number was uh, number one was Brendan. Just cast your mind back. The fourth most played deck. Um, yeah. So we had Briar, Viserai, Prism, and then no, no PT one. You had Bravo, oh, Star of the oh, Show, yeah, Chain, yeah. and Prism. Yep, and then the fourth most played deck. I would say Briar. Right. Yep, Briar. So yeah. it re- maybe it reads like a, <laughs> a list of living legend. Anyway, uh, welcome back to Arsenal Pass, episode 74. Uh, today, Brendan and I are diving into the mailbag. We've got a lot of questions from Twitter, from Discord, uh, from all you listeners out there to get into. Um, but first, Brendan, you know, how's your week been in Flesh and Blood? Have you been playing any Flesh and Blood? Yeah, I've been playing a lot. <laughs> um, so I was actually planning on taking like a multi-month break after PT2, but just been playing a lot of Flesh and Blood online whenever I have downtime, specifically in the morning, because um, yeah, I just usually have a few hours before I go out. I'm currently in Prague right now, which has been awesome. Just a beautiful city. But yeah, playing a lot of Flesh and Blood just here and there at night in my bed on my iPad in the morning, um, queuing into random people. Like, uh, I've been able, I've had the opportunity to play with Sasha plenty of times, but we often will opt to sort of two-headed giant in the in the public matches rather than just play against each other for now. Um, just has been a lot more helpful, and I've been having a lot of fun with it. Like I said, was planning to take a very long break, and the software and the usability and the, you know, just being able to spark up a game whenever has sort of reignited my passion for playing the game. Um, but yeah, I've been playing a lot of Kano. <laughs> Nice, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, I've seen some of your your uh, your games you've shared. So back on the Kano grind. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about you? <laughs> no, not much flesh and blood. I uh, played a couple of games here and there, but I'm um, I'm working at the moment. Uh, about to head back to Australia on I think the day this drops. So straight to nationals. So a little bit undercooked, underprepared, but um, have had some time to sort of reflect on post PT and and uh, what the meta kind of looks like and just kind of taking a theory approach to to what we might do for national so that's coming up pretty pretty quickly this weekend yeah i'm actually interested to know to to hear kind of what you think the meta does look like because i know we talked last week of course but uh like i remember dalen dalen mac posted a tweet which i think is pretty correct and he's like i've never seen so, so many people care so much about a battle hard in top eight and yeah, I mean, it seems like people have really taken this uh, this recent top eight in Columbus, um, which hosted no aggro decks, all control decks, pretty seriously. And I think it's actually going to have quite an impact on the um, the Nationals meta, if Twitter has anything to say about it, at least. <laughs> well, let's, let's get straight into that, because I guess that's kind of top of the news anyway. We'll jump into the news and talk about Battleheart in Columbus. So if you're unaware, there was the first post, uh, I guess, ban suspended announcement up event basically with prism gone was this battle hardened in columbus where yeah you're right brendan no aggro decks featured in the top eight so i believe it was three ultim two jeremiah two icelander and uh one dash is it dash so it was one aggro deck right there's one uh, dash, there's no room dash i believe i think it was a i saw the list i think it was a, a oh, hybrid it's pretty similar to what people yeah pretty similar basically the same list people playing at the pt from what i could see um i think it was uh, pretty similar to the team dragon shield list so uh, yeah, pretty pretty interesting to see that. Well, I guess yeah. What are you, what are your kind of takeaways on this? I have some some thoughts on this, but you kind of already started. So, what are your thoughts on this event and this meta, and what does this change heading internationals? Yeah. So, um, yeah, 
obviously I think Twitter kind of lied to me then regarding the dash deck. I mean, it definitely has a transformational sideboard. Probably didn't play just boost aggro into um, all those control decks. You know, has this sort of secondary game plan of setting up items and. Dash has been known to have somewhat inevitability, I guess, in the old days against a lot of the control decks because it would set up those items and come in with so many pistol attacks with the double purifiers, stuff like that. Uh, but that being said, no Briar, no Viscerai. I don't think that the case is closed on Briar and Viscerai in this format. I still think that Briar has like a favorable matchup into most of the decks in that top eight, specifically Jomai and Oldham. Uh, you know, maybe the Icelander matchup is a little bit harder, but most of the Icelander sort of aficionados I know mentioned that Briar is like actually quite a hard matchup, even though you and theoretically you're kind of countering them. Um, you know, they just get one window with Chan Maharoic and you just die, period. Um, old him, on the other hand, we tested that. I think it's still favorable into Briar. You, they, Drew mentioned on Twitter the additions to Hypothermia in that deck, which may have not been there in Pro Tour number two. But I still think that, you know, Briar has a pretty reasonable game plan into Old Ham, uh, into Old Ham going towards the late game, especially if you have um, uh, a better late game package with So Tomorrow's and, uh, you know, maybe an attack action to sort of retuck on the deck, the pseudo drone effect via Evergreen, something like that. Um, so, yeah, I think that while the results are important and you should be um you should definitely be taking them seriously if you're going to be playing nationals either this weekend or in the coming weeks um i don't think that this is you know the final the final note on you know aggro's over it's just a control format uh those days are gone i think there's going to be a lot of briar at these at these national events yeah i I think it's actually pretty funny the kind of response to this battle hard in top eight. I think you're right. Like you said, never has so so many cared about one battle hard in top eight. Uh, but I mean, it's the first event we've had post Prism, right? And the mm-hmm. kind of narrative was Prism's a, a format balancer. Once Prism goes, and who's checking the control decks? Well, I think if you look at the, you know, ninth place uh, was Fi. I know uh, Ethan Van Sant came ninth on Fi. You know, so missing on literally you know, uh, breakers, same points as, as those on eighth, because it was quite a long tail. The other thing as well is that this is a battle hardened where it's six rounds, you know, take one loss early, you're out of the event, you know, so I think it's really hard to have a really representative top eight personally in, in this format of the battle hardened. I think that's a different kind of discussion is that I think these battle hardened events. And so in Singapore, the battle hardened was eight rounds. Same in Texas, by the way, in Dallas, it was blitz. So that makes more sense. But with CC, still, with CC in Singapore. Yeah. Yeah. It needs to be like that, to be fair. I know that the time is kind of annoying, but the battle hardens that are just six rounds where it's like, yeah, if you lose any round except like the second to last round or the last round, you just immediately out and you just drop. No fun. The Blitz one was, yeah, you could go X2, I believe, and you still mm-hmm. had to lose a bit late, but feels way better. <laughs> Yeah, I think it makes a lot more sense. So I'd like to see that kind of looked at, you know, 120 players plus and you're playing six rounds, like you say. So lose second to last round, maybe, but probably need to lose the last round at most is um is, is pretty tough prospect. So I think that does skew kind of some of the data a little bit as well. And then, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a reaction to, to Prism Living Legend. You know, I think it's going to take a while for people to work out with these more aggressive strategies or more proactive strategies, I would say, how they actually want to or how they should be playing into decks like Icelander, decks like Ultim. Um, and then, of course, decks like something like Dramai kind of does a bit of a replacement job of Prism, right, in this meta where it kind of comes into to maybe do what this. Prism was trying to do. Yeah, yeah to, to, to turn, uh, you know, look after effectively these these more controlling decks. So it will be really interesting. Nationals, uh, I guess, moving on next in, into the news. Nationals weekend kicks off this uh, this coming Saturday. So we're going to see the first lot of Nationals. I believe, you know, of course, Australia, my Nationals this weekend, but there's also France. Uh, there's a few other national championships around the world. And then we kind of roll through for the next few weeks, eventually ending in the last week with US and, and uh, New Zealand nationals and a few other nationals. So it's going to be a pretty big three weeks of, of flesh and blood. And uh, I think we're going to see just how this format develops. Uh, the interesting thing for me is that I think the format is going to really probably settle after these three weeks as we head towards Worlds. And then we're going to have a really clear picture of what what the Worlds meta like, might look like or what the decks to target are. And, you know, you know, likely we could have Briar Living Legend. I'm not saying it's guaranteed because you look at, you know, you do do need to take some weight of these battle hardened results and and understand that the, the meta is different to what we saw in PT2. Uh, but you know, it does seem still somewhat likely that we'll see Briar Living Legend not far off. I think I think it works out to be sort of like three big nationals, two small ones. So it's still quite a few events to win for Briar Living Legend. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
there was one, yeah, one thing I want to bring up here. <laughs> it was just a random tweet by Legend Story Studios on the Fab TCG Twitter account. They just wrote hashtag Fab to Brazil. That's it. So I don't know what that means, Ooh, but that. probably means we have a tournament in Brazil. I don't know if it's going to be a calling or whatever, but it's pretty cool. I think that's our first venture into South America. Um, I'm not sure if the game is actually supported down there at the moment. Um, but probably means that it is going to be. I don't know if Fab to Brazil means that we're actually, now that I think about it, I don't know if it means there's going to be a tournament or they're going to start having like a, you know, I don't know, a region manager. Yeah, like a region manager, yeah. OP, like stuff like that. It's probably it's probably the latter, to be honest. But maybe they'll kick it off with a tournament. That would be pretty cool. Um, I, I well, think it's the latter. I think it's the latter, but it, it's a very big TCG market especially in Brazil. So I'm um, not surprised. And that's, that's great. I know there's been a few really big advocates uh, who want to get fab into South America. So I'm sure they're gonna be super happy with this. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Well, we see, I guess what we see next thing is, is uh, Portuguese printing of the history packs, I guess is the potential as well. <laughs> I hope so. I love, I love the, uh, I love the history packs. Um, that's kind of my new way. It's, been my way i guess since whiteboard is our thing but that's how i foil out my deck since i don't think the foibles foils are competitively viable anymore um you just get the the different languages the funny the german ones are hilarious by the way i played some some team sealed like we mentioned the other week um and then you get your high wi- speed impact oh yeah high speed impact that is a that one's a mouthful <laughs> that one's a mouthful but you get that with the whiteboarders the whiteboarders are the uh are officially the new cold foil since you really shouldn't be playing with those in the deck but um anyway Hayden, um, I, I know we're just going to just quick shout out to the Arsenal Pass Patreon. The support helps us immensely. We've got some content coming your way in preparation for Nationals, in preparation for the World Championships here. The first one is going to be a deck tech, an old him deck tech with the sort of old him master, in my opinion. And like I mentioned, or kind of, I think I mentioned on Twitter, he does get my vote currently for best fab player in the world that's going to be michael hamilton so he's going to be coming on to arsenal pass doing an old him deck tech and doing a little additional sideboard guide and write-up for the patreon so check that out if you are a patron and if you're interested in that feel free to subscribe and get some of that content yep definitely and last thing actually brendan is just want to call out we just we do have some more information on dynasty um you know officially releasing november 11th and we do get a first look at the kind of the product fact sheet, uh, some more up with the Emperor. And we saw we saw a card, you know, we saw this this crown of uh, Dominion. I'm not sure if you had a chance to look at this, Brendan. Yeah, I have. Um, so it, by equipping it, uh, which I'm assuming is just starting with it, you immediately create the gold token. And I think that, a gold, that gold tokens are pretty strong. Uh, whatever Royal is, the subtext of Royal and how it affects the other cards that are printed in, in Dynasty, we are yet to see. I think it's really cool right now that I think the set has like a lot of flavor already, right? We've gotten a dual class. We got the warrior wizard. Now we have this additional royal, I don't know if you would call it a subtext, super text, subclass, whatever it is uh, that gets added onto your hero. And then we've seen gold tokens. You know, we've had these copper tokens forever, these very inefficient ways to draw cards. But finally, gold token, pay two, draw a card. Sounds like the kind of card I want to have in my deck, not going to lie. Yep, yep. And we do have a... Um a bit of a, a backstory on the Emperor as well that you can go and check out on fabtcg.com. You can learn more about the Emperor, uh, Drakai Vasir. And, of course, we do finally have a way to get rid of those pesky Frost Hexes if you are playing as the Emperor. Well, it's, it's a generic, isn't it, this uh, this piece that we've seen so far? Yeah, which is kind of a bummer. Um, well, I was just going to say, recently dip, dipping my dipping my toes into Icelander, it's quite nice just being able to set up, set up Frost Hexes on some of these control decks, and they literally can't do anything about it. <laughs> Oh, I'm gonna miss that. Yeah, it's only it is legendary the Imperial Warhorn. So if you haven't seen Imperial Warhorn, it's a generic action item of Majestic that's legendary. So you can only have one in your deck anyway. Cost two. Uh, it says action one red destroy Imperial Warhorn. Choose any number of heroes. Each of them chooses an ally or an item or landmark permanent they control, and then destroy each of the permanents chosen this way. Um, and if you're a royal instead, you choose the permanence. So if you're playing as the emperor, you can make sure that frost text disappears or that library or whatever you want it to be. Otherwise, if you're uh, you're not if you're not royal, then uh, maybe they get to play a, a time snap potion or an e pot to try and blank your imperial warhorn. We'll see. We'll see if uh, how much impact this card has. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just really hard to tell right now, but it looks like a fun tool for potential. Like potential combo decks and potential degenerate formats maybe as a way to uh, help mitigate against those. Um, nevertheless, Hayden, I am in Czechia right now. 
I think the, the Czech Republic was officially renamed to Czechia, and that's like how it's written on a map. But my guide told me not to pronounce it as Czechia because it sounds like Chechnya. And he said, Czechia. <laughs> he actually gave me the, uh, <laughs> the, the fist. <laughs> he gave me, like, I was like, I said, I said, uh, Czechia. And he's like, gave me the fist. I was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so, uh, I'm there now. The diet is pretty interesting. It is just a bunch of meat and beer. I think the Czech Republic does consume more beer than maybe any other country in the world. Definitely more than Germany who gets the, gets the rap for it. Um, so beer is very popular here, but with any good beer comes, comes some meat on that barbie i don't know if they grill out here but the command and cookout is pretty good been loving the food finally able to eat food that sustains me as a human being this very uh you know stark difference from over there in Lille. but um with that hayden let's head into the command and cookout section this week which is actually the entire episode because we are heading into the mailbag yeah i do just want to <laughs> Great intro. I do just want to call out as well. If you want to get questions in for future Commander Cookout sections, uh, you can do so by emailing us at arsenalpassfab at gmail.com, dropping a question in Discord. Uh, we actually had a question on the YouTube comments last week, which we're going to add into this mailbag. You can also do that, drop a question in the YouTube comments, call out that's a Commander Cookout question, or you can DM us on Twitter or tweet at us, and we'll get those questions in. But Brendan, I'm going to throw over you and let you lead through these uh, great questions that you've curated for the mailbag episode this week. Yeah, so this one I think is pretty. We're going to start off with a few meta ones, um, and I think this this first question is uh, I don't know, still fresh in our minds because it was very relevant for PT number two. So it's from I'm a bunny, um, and this comes from discord i believe could have came from twitter as well discord twitter kind of lumped them together when i was sifting through the questions but it's when building for an unknown meta due to a new set release or impactful banner strict update <clears throat> usually the latter <laughs> how would you approach testing testing an event with a short lead time would you stick to a comfort pick or make a call and jam testing and jam testing in a short time based on what you expect the meta to shift to ah Great question. I mean, this is kind of what I'm faced with right now, actually, with, you know, less than two weeks to peak between PT2 and my nationals. Um, I guess it's a little bit different for me in this instance because I can't even test as I would like to, but I can answer in that and then I'll give a more, I guess, general answer and then see what you think, Brendan. But I think in this instance, you know, I'm probably taking a bit of a mixed approach to what, um, what's the name? I'm a bunny, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so a bit of a bit of comfort, right? Like I feel like if I'm not able to test much, I need to know what the hero is going to do. I need to be able to make sure that I know lines and play patterns. Otherwise, you know, it's going to lead to a lot of a lot of trouble. It's going to lead to suboptimal plays. It's going to lead to even if I kind of have a great idea of how this this deck or this hero might attack the meter, if I don't know how to play it, it's it's not really going to serve me and serve the job of attacking the meter the way it should anyway. So um, I think. In a short lead time, I'm probably looking for something, you know, depending on how short the lead time is, you know, if it's it's a week, two weeks, and there's minimal testing time, then I'm looking for a mix of comfort and something that can, uh, I guess, shift to attack the meta in a certain way. Now, if I maybe extrapolate that a little bit and say, say that I was in an ideal world right now between PT number two and nationals where I get to test, you know, a few hours a day, get a few sort of reps in, uh, then I'm going to shift more towards the idea of this... Um, this idea of how to attack what I think the meta is going to shift to. So, you know, if we look at maybe the Columbus battle hardened, we look at this idea that uh, we're shifting to a more of control meta. Prism is not there to check those decks. That's the kind of narrative. And, and I agree. I think that's how it's kind of moving. Then, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing I'm looking to target. You know, how, can I find the best deck into control decks, but can also have great game to Briar and Viscerai and, and, and Dash? You know, those are the kind of things I'm, I'm looking to do. So I think it's kind of like a, it's not a black or white. I think it's like a sliding scale. And I think, Comfort is important because you need to understand how to play these heroes, how to play the lines, what your game plans actually are. You have to have deep understanding of that. I think you can't just pick something up sort of pretty raw and unless you have a long time to test it. So if we if we get it, say, between uh, the, the band suspended announcement and PT1, right? I think we had three weeks or two and a half weeks, three weeks. Then, yeah, I'm, I'm leaning away from comfort, right? Because I have time to actually pick these up. But, yeah, as we get closer and closer, the sliding scale moves away from meta pick to comfort pick yep so um i mean i can just i'm just gonna kind of zoom out a bit and go from just pure theory so i know when like sasha and i are approaching a new meta the way we like the decks we're looking for is we're looking for something that is so broken that it actually kind of doesn't care about the meta which is very unlikely right but below that 
and definitely ahead of sort of comfort and just sort of your stock standard jack of all trades is a deck that targets the meta, which can be very hard to do, especially with the banner restricted announcements kind of being as variable as they are. It can shift very quickly and it's just, yeah, it's been really tough recently. Um, you know, Prism specifically showing up in as much as it did to PT2 probably could have been predicted based off PT1 uh, sort of attendance. But, you know, in the context of that meta didn't make as much sense. Um, I know a lot of people brought decks that had sort of bad matchups in the prism and were surprised. Nevertheless, yeah, we do want we do want to be picking decks that do sort of target the meta, surprise players, and put players in a position where they are uncomfortable, right? Either under tested or just kind of completely ignorant of what your deck is actually trying to accomplish. Uh, it leads to a much better tournament experience. Obviously, the sort of pre prep and work and luck that goes into finding a deck like that is not going to land you with <laughs> that deck every single time. So that's what we try to go to. So if we don't find that, which is, you know, it's very possible. I think that com a comfort pick is, it's an interesting way to put it, right? So I would never go to the Pro Tour number two uh, and, you know, obviously Pablo Pintor top eighting on Viscera, but I would have never picked Viscera. I would have never gone to Pro Tour two and been on Viscera, right? Um, I think the Viscera is seen as potentially <laughs> more consistent than Briar, maybe has a cleaner matchup spread, uh, less like bad matchups. I guess maybe it's better in uh, Isolexi and stuff like that. But I just thought that the deck was fundamentally less powerful than Briar. But I was more comfortable on it, right? I feel like Briar with Spellbound Creepers and with some of the more interesting things you can do with things like Amulet of Earth can be a bit tricky to play. Um, and I did feel like we were under-repped, which I'll get into later. But there was pretty much no situation where I was going to pick what I thought was sort of the default good deck of the format, which I thought was Viscerai. Um, so as a result, we did end up on Briar, which I do think is a bit of a comfort pick, right? We didn't end up on like Old Him or anything like that. So Briar was a deck that we've played a lot. Um, obviously, we brought it to US Nationals in the form of Earth Briar, played um, Zero Cross, Lightning Briar on the uh, the calling the following day. Both of us, I think, just most pretty much all three of us missed out on Breakers for top eight with Dante making top eight. Um, so we had a lot of experience on the deck. Nevertheless, we went into that tournament, and because we were crunching in the short period of time, all of us were underrepped, and I believe we all suffered for that to an extent. I know that you know, looking back retrospectively, it wasn't. There's was a lot of matches that didn't feel like uh, we were lost because of the lack of rest, but I think that all of us were uncomfortable on that deck, which is something that we're definitely going to fix for the future, and I think was was a mistake. So, to answer your question. I will consistently try to audible to a deck that uh, you know targets the meta, you know tries to predict the meta shift. Ideally, you're doing that months in advance where you're testing for multiple metas, even if it's very loosely. You have decks. It's like okay, we expect this to card to maybe be banned. You know, um, so Stubby Hammer is a little broken, so we can kind of test as if this is broken. Same thing with Scalata stuff like that. And uh, yeah, just kind of be ready. But I think that that last. Like that week leading up to a major event like a Pro Tour World, I think should be almost exclusively just reps and game plans. Like I want the list to be 90 plus percent locked in before that week, because when you're considering changing heroes in the last week or changing, you know, archetypes like we did from Earth Briar, you know, Taller Briar to sort of this light, this, you know, more zero cost Briar, it's... I just think that it's really hard to stay disciplined with your time and things kind of uh, fall through your fingers really quickly and you end up being underrepped and uncomfortable going into the tournament. Yeah, I don't think the last week is the time to be learning gameplay patterns and learning you know these quite surface level things about a hero. So I agree on that. That's why I think like, you know, this was say about the sliding scale of comfort picks. I also think when you you talked about Viscerizer as a great example, I'm I'm slightly different uh, to you, Brendan. I think like I would have been perfectly happy to have played Viscerai at the. I mean, I'm perfectly happy. I wouldn't have been like stoked about it, but you know, I was pretty close to just falling back on on Viscerai um, because do you know, do as well, right? Does that? I just have to. I just want to. Sorry to interrupt, but I want to. I want to ask that question before you kind of go into that. But did the dual format influence that at all? Were you like, am I more comfortable being on sort of maybe a less powerful average deck because it isn't just a strictly uh, class constructed format? I think the opposite, actually. Um, like, interesting. I felt, 
Yeah. Yeah, I felt like I, I wanted to play Brian more into this format because of just draft and I felt like it'd be really hard to five one way XO draft, <laughs> basically. So um I felt like I, I needed a deck that maybe had uh, you know, maybe sacrificed a, a few more matchups, but just was more powerful in general. That's probably why I didn't fall back to Viserai. Had this been a fourteen rounds of class constructed, I think I very likely might have just played Viserai and just taken my matchup spread and, and felt really good about the list I had in my pocket, to be honest. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense too when you say it like that. So it's kind of interesting how you can <laughs> how you can talk yourself in. Yeah, you can talk yourself yeah. into the kind of both both ways both ways. Um, but yeah, I think that yeah, it's really interesting that we have the the two different ways of approaching it um, to an extent. But I think like from a like zoom out like a couple like a couple weeks or even a couple months, I think we both have the same idea of like what the 100%. perfect process is right we maybe don't execute it every time but like we have an idea it's like we want to get our deck like sorted because i believe that reps um and specifically like pattern recognition is extremely important for these long form tournaments when you're playing against some of the best players in the world and you're not going to be taking things back um you don't want to be losing games to silly mistakes or just pure ignorance on some card interactions um that that stuff is very avoidable yeah, you just miss stuff that you should you should already be across just from knowing the hero. Yeah, I think I mean you know I think as a group actually in our testing so far for the the first two PTs, we've all kind of started in the same place and then maybe we deviate a little bit. We usually end up back at the same place about midway and then maybe there's a little more deviation and then generally kind of towards the end we usually at least on like parallel paths if not the same paths in terms of the way that we're thinking about the format and and working towards attacking the format. Like you said earlier, you know it's always about. Uh, trying to, I guess, ignore the format in the first place and then attack the format and then kind of play in with the format is like the last thing you want to be doing, but is often sometimes what you have to do. Yeah. All right. So next up, we have a message from Teclo Foundry. This is from Discord. Um, he says, what goes into meta analysis and how tiers are decided on? Is it simply deck win rate into an entire field or is it more complicated than that? Your interpretation of the meta is usually pretty spot on. So I'd be interested to hear the process behind it. So Hayden, how do we look at a meta and decide, you know, what is the best deck? Is it the deck that you know, maybe has because nowadays on we can look at Fab Online and we can see decks with high win rate, right? Like we can see things like Dorinthia that has high win rate, but I think that Dorinthia is actually maybe not super well positioned. How do we how do we sort of um, come to the conclusion of what the best decks are and what are potentially the best decks to be playing? Right? Is it the deck with the most win rate, or you know, something like Viserai? Maybe it has a very high win rate, but you plan to be playing into a lot of Briars who are going to be just sort of spiking you with Mount Heroic turns and things like that um i'll let you dive into this one yeah i, I just want to first of all give a, a quick shout out to Teclo foundry who was a big part of the fitness challenge and has been uh ongoing with updating us on on his uh, journey so just quick shout out there uh it's a really interesting question and it's a great question i think because uh the first of all the, the first word that kind of stands out to me in that first sentence is tears how are tears decided on um don't i don't really i think tears are kind of a not a great way to look at the game to be honest because i think it's more about strategies and there's fluidity within what heroes can do. So um, I think there's a, there's like a, if I was to talk tier list, I wouldn't be like S, A, B, C, et cetera. I'd be like uh, playable and unplayable. It's probably my tier list. I think for any given meta, basically, you know, so like what is competitive, what's not competitive. And, and maybe if you wanted to synthesize that down a little bit, you could say, okay, what is the target? Then what is competitive? And then what's not competitive It's probably how I would look at that more. So, so, I just wanted to kind of get that out of the way. First of all, what goes into meta analysis? I think, first of all, it starts with, you know, what are we seeing? What is the prevailing, even if it's not necessarily what the data is 100% showing, although we'll always try and start with the data, you know, so what's been happening a lot from the last few events, it's actually like, what is the prevailing discourse? Like, what are, what do people believe is at the top? So, you know, in the in the last meta, it's like going into PT2, Viserai was kind of talked about as like the the deck to, to beat, right? The, this is the, the deck that was kind of... Um, even though it wasn't wasn't showing up in the stats, it wasn't necessarily showing up in these events. It won like one of the battle hardens, but like Prism was dominating the top eights. We're seeing like quite a lot of Briar sort of either side of, of that battle hardened as well. It was still Viscerite that's being talked about. So it's, it's not always about the kind of pure stats of things. And that's why when we talked about Columbus before, I was 
pretty quick to say that you know this is one top eight and i think the data is hard to take away from this but what's more important is like the narrative shifting towards more of a control sort of uh meta so that's kind of where it starts it's not about tech low ass you know is it about win rate uh, into the entire field you know it's 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 really not it's actually for me it's actually a bit more um qualitative than quantitative i think in this game because things move quickly uh there's a different level of understanding between different groups of players between different regions i think you have to take regionality into account when you talk about uh, sort of data showing up so I, I think more the, the, mo- the most important thing is actually understanding like what is the narrative right now heading into this metagame and I think if you if you took a step back and looked at that I think you pretty accurately would be able to predict the meta for PT2 you know the rise of Briar the importance of Viscerai Prism still being there uh, Ultim upticking slightly you know that that was literally what happened Dash showing up like that and if you looked at the narrative plus a bit of the data, I think you could quickly come to that sort of realization of, of what the meta was going to look like. Yeah, I think I I am sort of congruent with playable and unplayable rather than tiers, but there is something that supersedes that where it's like, f- I look, definitely look for cards. And inter- yeah, cards and cards and interactions that are fundamentally unfair. And like, that is what I really want to be putting in my deck. Um, but this is pretty it's it's pretty interesting because I feel like flesh and blood, at least in more recent times, has become a bit more rock, paper, scissors, right? Like <laughs> a long, long, long time ago in the old ways and welcome to Wraith, you kind of had game into everything, right? Uh, no matter what you were playing. Nowadays, you do, technically, you do have game, but you will tend most decks, aside from what I guess nor you could colloquially call <laughs> the tier zero decks, things like the um, Briar decks that you know showed up you know, four in the top eight of the PT, tend to have like one really bad matchup somewhere, like one potential auto loss, as um, you know some people I call. So I actually think that in Flesh and Blood, like predicting the meta and predicting what will show up is so incredibly important. Uh, and calling back to the amount of prism that showed up at the PT. I think that you could have predicted that based off PT1, but if you just looked at these sort of quantitative data with a bit of recency bias and you looked at something like Singapore's results and what showed up at Singapore with barely any old hymns, like literally almost no old hymns and, you know, much less prism, um, I think you had a reasonable sort of sample of data to say, oh, there might not be a lot of prism at PT2. But what we know, regionally based and sort of what showed up in PT1 as well, despite Chain being very powerful, is that people are going to play Prism no matter what, and people really like Prism, and it shows up in Force. And that's sort of the narrative that uh, that shined through. And I know some people that came on those decks that had really bad mashups in the Prisms and maybe had a bad gem pairing. You know, they showed up on Oldham, they showed up on Icelander. You know, they had a bad time. And I, uh, most of the ones I spoke to expected less Prism as a result of that data. So I think in Flesh and Blood, you have playable and unplayable decks. <laughs> yeah, maybe some of those unplayable decks are playable too. Uh, you have some that are a bit, they break the math a bit, right? They might be a bit broken. They might be a little bit overpowered. But I think most importantly, you want to sort of predict what other decks are going to show up to skew the gem pairings in your favor um, with the highest likelihood. Yeah, so I think it's one thing, right? So Tickler is asking about meta analysis, which is 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 one thing. And then the next step is, you know, are you are you just going over and above that like you talked about? So I guess for or are you you targeting it? You know, those are those are two different things and that comes next. I, I think the the interesting thing I actually was while you were talking, Brendan, I just had a look. So about two weeks before Singapore, uh, actually about ten days before Singapore, uh, the the three of us, actually the four of us in total, were talking about what we expected the meta game to be. And I have a sheet that uh, me and Sasha actually did together. We went through kind of what we expected the meta to look like. It's really, really close to what the meta ended up being with a slight shift with Dash increasing and Bravo decreasing, um, which kind of happened with Singapore. So, and I think that literally came off the back of, yeah, a little bit of data, but a lot of what the discourse was uh, and sort of discussion happening in the community. You know, I think Twitter's a great place for this. Discord's a great place for this. Um, and then a little bit of the stats and extrapolating to to what's happening uh, from there. So just really interesting, I think. It's going to be, I think as we get more data in this game, it'd be interesting to see if that, that changes a little bit so data becomes more important than it is right now uh but also you know we, we need more events as well so i think just pure data from games played is not win rate in this game doesn't correlate to results i think in, in big Definitely. events because <laughs> yeah because of the complicated nature of of deck lists of game plans etc so mm-hmm. um i think i caution 
there's a lot of discussion going on right now about the use of data and 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 the impact of fab online and things like that and i guess my kind of initial response is, is really so far data has not been that massively important in flesh and blood but uh, we'll see yeah it's actually pretty <laughs> it's pretty funny if you go on fab online just a small anecdote like dorinthia has above a 50 percent win rate um and uh, Kano sitting around 30-something percent. Icelander sitting down near the 40 percent. Uh, Kano and Icelander, I think, are extremely powerful decks, and in the right player's hands are some of the best decks actually in the current game. But you know, you're going to see things like Dorinthia and Viscerai have some of the highest matchup spreads because they're the easiest decks to play. Like, uh, Spell on Creepers, I guess, is a bit more challenging of Viscerai. Viscerai, like, playing Mav Shrill is pretty freaking easy, right? And then getting in your Revel and Runebloods, which is going to happen a lot on ladder. Playing Dorinthia, which hasn't been seen in the meta for a long time, and just kind of gotcha in your opponent with some attack reacts. Like, yeah, that's going to that's gonna be a really good quote-unquote ladder deck. Uh, and the thing is, is, like, the more you adhere to the, what the data says on something like Fab TCG Online or something like that, and you use that to influence your picks, like you want to pick the, the, the deck with the highest win rate, the more easy it, the easier it is for like smaller groups of players to target you and target that meta, right? With a deck that just absolutely kind of blows that out of the water. Um, so data's a double-edged sword, and yeah, some of the data that is currently showed on Fab TCG Online, I think it's pretty funny with uh, you know, specifically Kano being in like the lowest win rate. Levy is still below it. Sorry, sorry, man, Sam. <laughs> Still, still a really small data size, and also, um, Brendan, I've been uh, I've been told by a few people, can you please stop bringing the win rate of Kano down in an attempt to make it look worse? So, <laughs> yep, that's me. All right, so next up we have Mason Brantley. He said, with the recent SEG Con top eight featuring many control decks, can you speak uh, to the, the psychological? difference between aggro heavy metas and control heavy metas i've seen more intense negativity from the anticipation anticipation of the upcoming meta being a control meta um than i remember for the year plus that aggro has dominated well um i'll go ahead and i guess touch on this one first so first off i think that the initial reaction of the community is always going to be intense <laughs> i think there was probably there was probably a time when the reaction of the community was intense towards the aggro meta right so things like the viscerai deck back when it could also combo pretty easily um you know briar just in general people i mean the outcry around briar was pretty bad from what i remember um but I think that what what's hard about what's potentially harder about control metas <clears throat> is yeah they're probably less fun at the armory level right specifically fatigue metas because fatigue as we've said a lot and I know this is probably in Arsenal passism at this point fatigue is a strategy that's very easy to implement and very hard to beat um, especially at the beginner level so it can just absolutely terrorize armories um, and lead to what is seen as a very bad format but aggro on the other hand sort of takes out a lot of the tenets of what makes flesh and blood a good game like just raw aggro mirrors so things like blocking right blocking is a part of flesh and blood but some of these aggro decks literally don't block right and that's you know that might take out some fun for people some dynamic gameplay second cycle pitch stacking sort of your <laughs> keeping track of your threat density whatsoever um a lot of that stuff kind of falls by the wayside as you just play aggro mirror into aggro mirror they're fun in their own way but i think that both both kinds of metas have a downside with the upcoming quote-unquote control meta, although I don't think that that's exactly what's going to happen, um, it does actually look to be a pretty fun control meta. So if it was just old him fatiguing people out, yeah, that would suck. But uh, old him, you know, there's things like Jermai, another illusionist that can potentially you know put enough permanence on board to sort of uh, assemble a critical mass of power to win in the late game. You have things like Dash with the weapons. Um, I know that Guardian did get that shield for some reason, so they're in a better spot. But also Icelander for the Frost Texas. Old Tim can't do anything about Frost Texas, and that Icelander combo is actually quite good. Um, I'm sure Old Tim's are going to add, you know, play against that, figure out some tech, and you know maybe make it a better matchup, but. I don't think that Oldham is the end-all be-all or fatigue is the end-all be-all that it used to be. And I think there are tools to beat it, which make uh, control meta, if that is what happens, pretty interesting. I actually would, I think I would probably enjoy it, uh, enjoy it more, but I might sort of eat those words. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Iceland is, a, I think, actually pretty great for the game. So, so far it's... Um... It's really interesting to me what what's going to happen with a meta that has Icelander that can kind of thrive and do well. So, I mean, this might be my favorite question so far. This kind of psychological idea between aggro heavy metas and control heavy metas, because you know, I think this 
the, the aggro heavy, when you talk from like, a, I guess, a psychological difference from an aggro heavy meta, it's kind of like a race to the bottom has been this kind of, I think, thought process for people is like, okay, how do I have the fastest deck? How do I, how do I win a turn earlier than the other aggro decks? How do I, uh, or how do I disrupt these aggro decks? Like that's kind of the, the psychological standpoint is like, okay, I can go either one of two ways, right? Like I can go faster than that person or I can go disruption. And sometimes that has led to, you know, a more control route, say like Ultim and trying to just like straight fatigue the opponent or wear them down with hammer, et cetera. Or it's like on hit effects that kind of force the aggro deck to then block to slow them down or just be straight up faster, right? That's kind of the, it's like that psych- psychological standpoint. I think when you hit into a control meta, <clears throat> it feels a lot more complicated. It feels like I don't just have one or two or three options. It's like there's a lot more turns in the game is like one of the psychological differences. There's a lot more decision points in the game, although I don't think that's actually true. I think that's what what is kind of thought of as like the psychological difference. And it's like, how do you how do you approach this? You know, there's so many more decision points. There's so many more turns. Like, what do what do I do? How do I do it? And in reality, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think if you boil it down, it's still about having a really clear game plan. So let's take say like the Viserai into Ultim uh, game. You know, I, I think if you're the Viserai player trying to find a route to victory. It's about setting up really important turns. It's still about five card hands. It's still about really important phases of the game with key cards. So say it's say it's more to try and read the runes. Uh, so Revel and Runeblood, really important card in that matchup. So there's still really important turns and five card hands. And then in between that, you just have you just have turns. You just have uh, gameplay. And sometimes that's just blocking to preserve life. Sometimes that's trying to leak some damage with Rosetta Thorn, things like that. So I do think it can feel a bit more daunting in a control heavy meter. And I think that's maybe people's response as well. You know, get ready for the grind, get ready to settle in. Uh, I personally think it's a great thing. I think those are really exciting when you have to have these, these game plans that evolve and unfold over the course of your 60 cards, as opposed to just the kind of first 10 or 15 cards you draw mattering. Um, I actually think that gives more agency in the game. So for, for me personally, from like a psychological standpoint, I'm really excited by that. Like I'm really like ready to, to, to grid in and, and play my whole 60 cards as opposed to, you know, just kind of think about the top 15 cards in my deck. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, it'll be fresh. And I think that's enough to keep, it's entertaining at least at the, at the beginning. We've been in this, ag, we've been in the aggro format for a very, very long time and has just gotten faster and faster and faster. Uh, and to see that maybe finally turn the corner would be nice just for kind of a new experience. All right. Hey, it's, now- it's so, I just want to say it's so funny. It's like this is the meta that we thought we were going to get when Ultim was first printed. Yeah. You know, we thought that we were going to have this really aggressive meta that kind of got balanced by disruptive elements with decks. But the power level was just too high. Uh, you know, Pr- Prism was in that meta too to mitigate some of this. So we're seeing that shift. Will that actually play out over the, the long term as we head to Worlds? I, I don't know. But... Yeah, the this idea of like this psychological difference it's, it's going to get some used to uh, some getting used to you know this idea that you have to settle in for these games. It is about the full game plan and the full sixty cards. Yeah, and people are always going to be pissed on Twitter. That's what Twitter is for. So Fair I'm <laughs> I'm paraphrasing this one from Collision Point. Um, and hey, I just want to I just want you to talk a little bit about the. Obviously, Briar. If Briar gets banned, Briar's a big deck. Briar's been popular for a long time. Powerful deck. Talk to me about the ban of Rosetta Thorn. What does that do for Rune Blades? Like Rosetta Thorn is just a different weapon, and you know you could say it's just it built it's built different. One for four. Um, Rune Blades having to go back to this other suite of weapons. How do you feel about that? For obviously the current Rune Blade being Visry, but future Rune Blades. Um, do you think that Rosetta Thorn was a bit above curve? Was it too powerful? And are Rune Blades going to be sort of probably perpetually less powerful for a while until they get something on par with uh, Rosetta Thorn after it's banned. So you just paraphrased a one sentence question into a, uh, into a whole story. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> classic, classic, <laughs> classic. Um, but no, it, it is a great question. So I guess what does, what happens? So the question, sorry, I'm trying to, uh, the question is what happens when Rosetta Thorn rotates out basically, right? Like yeah. what does that mean for the for game? For specifically yeah. Viscerai initially, but for Rune Blades moving forward right like that weapon yeah. and do you think that that weapon is uh fundamentally more powerful and sort of above curve than other yeah, i mean it is yeah it is it just it just straight up is because it's it's one for four split across two sources one of those sources being something that requires you to play a different set of equipment to even think about dealing with and then depending on what the opponent does beforehand can can change that sort of scenario so it, it definitely is and it what it what it's done the kind of big thing that Rosetta Thorn has done is this this game plan or this strategy of you know non attack action attack action Rosetta Thorn it's like a, a really clear kind of path to leak and push damage generally 
um, which is is really interesting. So I think when Rosetta Thorn moves, we 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 move away from that sort of that structured sort of way of needing to play a rune blade. Um, I think initially that's going to feel like a really massive downgrade obviously <laughs> you know a lot of loss of power but what i think it opens up long term is a really interesting design space for deck builders and for uh, players to pioneer game plans into how they want to play into different matchups um you know think if even in the initial standpoint it's like okay Rosetta going means briar's gone which means viscerize the the soul rune blade left who would have thought about that and uh nebula blade would probably be Probably be the weapon of choice, although you do have, of course, Reaping Blade and then uh, Dread Scythe, depending on what. Maybe maybe the, the Rune Blade deck looks completely different. Maybe uh, uh, Viserain is taking a completely different standpoint and Dread Scythe becomes viable. I don't know. But that's going to change this kind of idea and structure because when you have Nebula Blade, you probably still play to that game plan initially. I think people will go to that attack action, non-attack action uh, Nebula Blade, for instance. But that's a that's a much more resource-intensive turn. You know, you need to start looking at one-cost attacks. You know, the Shrill into Rosetta Thorn is no longer viable. It's going to maybe have to be something like Spellblade Strike into, into Nebula Blade, which is a much uh, less powerful turn. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be really interesting, I think. And then I guess kind of like long term, I mean, it depends what we get from the next the next Rune Blade. Uh, I do think that Rosetta Thorn potentially leaving in the near future is just a is just a, is just a good thing. Although I think Rosetta Thorn helps balance out these decks that can really take the game long. So something like an Ultim, um, even potentially something like Dramai, because you can always force to leak damage through five card hands. Uh, which you potentially won't be able to do with without Rosetta Thorn in the format. So I'm optimistic but i'm also a little bit worried once rosetta thorn sort of rotates out because it feels like the current format is balanced for rosetta thorn a little bit mm-hmm. yeah and i totally agree with you <laughs> actually but uh, i'm interested to see what they give us in uh in lieu of that exiting and, the format yeah like do we get another room blade in, in dynasty do we get something that's rosetta thorn-esque but not quite that's really interesting to see you know like a uh an attack for three that has one arcane damage is like really interesting to me i think because i think that balances out rosetta thorn a little bit uh makes it you know defendable with one card plus an extra floating resource to block the arcane i've been interested to see if that's that sort of weapon might be viable i just want to say collision point did also ask about you know would scalada returning help boost this right i think once you have rosetta thorn out the format a card like scalada becomes interesting again because you don't have necessarily the ability to potentially attack on two axes like those decks did where they're just like has a really efficient aggro deck that also has this crazy combo. Um, so, yeah, let's see. Maybe that card can be unsuspended. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, also, just want to say, like, Rosetta Thorn from a theoretical perspective, um, I think that it's too powerful in the aggro and mid-range matchups, but I also think it's borderline necessary in the control matchups. So if there was yeah. something that replaced it that was sort of more equalized in the aggro matchups, whatever constraint you would put on it, uh, to have it achieve that, but also had that same level of power level and the ability to leak damage into the fatigue and the control decks i think that would be the ideal weapon um i just don't see the current rune blade suite of weapons <laughs> actually doing that so we'll probably have to get something new all right hayden this is a question this is kind of a time old time old question for arsenal pass some would even say a cliche at this point but this is from toma harvest and he says what is the most underrated card in the classic constructive meta and why and if we have time same question for blitz uh, Hayden, I can only guess what yours might be, and I think it's uh, might be a warrior card, maybe. <laughs> I, I think you start. I need to have a little quick think about this. Uh, so, what is the most underrated card in the current CC format? So, I'm going to say I'm going to do kind of meta relevant, right? <laughs> um, I think that, and let me let me let me make it easy. Let me bring it back to like PT number two, right? Because we're seeing massive potential changes in the meta. I think that I think the most underrated card was probably Amulet of Earth. <laughs> I just I think that card, when I saw it, I think thought it kind of sucked. Um, I don't even think that it's particularly like the by itself like super powerful. I just thought that at that tournament, um, it was really good. I thought it was really good with Spellbound Creepers and what we were, what that deck was trying to do. Um, and on top of that, my opponent just didn't see it on the freaking board for some reason. Not all of them, but some of them. Like, and I experienced that in testing. Like a the permanent of Amulet of Earth in an aggro matchup. If you have no experience playing against it, which a lot of people didn't, they would, and sometimes you can't block, you can't, you can't overblock it by one. It's a damned if you do, damned if you don't, and it sits on the board forever. So it's like that, that pummel that you can't play around, but it just sits there forever when someone's forced of naturing you or snatching you and doing stuff like that. I think that card is freaking gas. Blocks for zero, correct, but there's not a lot of blocking going on in that format anyway. So I thought that card was really underrated for class constructed. 
Um, might cop out a little bit, really, and just probably just say Spellbone Creepers are still underrated. <laughs> <laughs> probably, yeah. It's really, really good card. What about Unified Decree? Yeah. Did that one did make the list? You know what? Uh, it didn't, but uh, <laughs> maybe in the future. It's not the most underrated card. It's the most. Uh, it's a sleeper card, you know. Um, the the things that I do just maybe want to point out though is yellows. I think yellow cards are kind of a little bit underrated in this upcoming meta. Uh, you know, I think about attack actions that you needed to play six six power cards because of prism and things like that. They become obviously way less relevant without prism in the format. And I think ye- some yellow lines over some potential red lines in your deck uh, is is like a really relevant decision to be made in this upcoming meta. So I do just want to say maybe yellows as a whole might be a little bit underrated in this uh, kind of upcoming meta. Mm-hmm. Uh, honorable mention for me, after getting some experience with the deck, I think Promise of Plenty was pretty underrated obviously matt was the only one that played it uh in his deck that draws like a million cards it was pretty good (laughs) i think it's a pretty good card actually in that deck so uh and that was i don't think anybody else played that for what it's worth so for blitz um yeah blitz i don't know it's probably aether wildfire to be honest Mm, i think it's I, i think it's probably this the first fist Okay, yeah, that was definitely underrated, so yeah. <laughs> still not seeing a lot of play. People still choosing to, to play Tunic in some matchups and, and things like that. I would just be playing Fist of First Fist most of the time, and any deck that can you know efficiently present damage and, and to be able to use those resources for any kind of solid value, it's probably either that or Goliath Gauntlet for me. You know, mm-hmm. It's a big, you know, 10% of someone's life is, is pretty big in that format. Yeah, just getting two value out of your equipment uh, pretty easy off the Goliath Gauntlet. Okay, closing out. Coming to the last few questions, Aiden, we have a question from 1426, and he says, How do you recover when a big tournament doesn't go your way? My little experience was great, but some travel difficulties led to a mediocre performance in the first day of the main event. Still had a great first time at the PT, though. Um, I'll go ahead and let you take this one, Aiden. So how do you deal with with loss, disappointment, uh, and not getting the result that you ultimately hope for? Yeah, I mean, that's that's what happened at, at Lille, really. I mean, it's it's hard to be... So I went eight six in the end, which is you know it's a winning record. It's day two, um, but ultimately it's not you know not why I'm there. Um, how do you? I just think that the best way to recover is to move on. <laughs> you can't win every event. You can't uh, top every event. It's I mean unless you know maybe your names Pablo Pinto or Michael Hamilton, I guess. But you know for the majority of us, that's that's not attainable. So I think what you have to do is you just have to to move on. Uh, I do think a reflection on the event is really important. So, you know, for me, that's like a post-mortem on the event. What what went wrong in preparation? What went wrong on the day? What would I do differently in hindsight? What would I do differently even if I ignore the event but just think about maybe better preparation? Those are things that can lead me to, I think, make better decisions in the future. You know, I, at the end of the day, you can't change what happened. So the hindsight, you could be careful of, of, you know, oh, I should have played this, or I should have played that. Realistically, it's more important to think about your preparation and, you know, had the preparation changed, would you have actually ended up on one of those decks? Or is it just, well, actually, now knowing everything about the PT, this would have been the ideal deck? Because often that that's just not, you know, it's not relevant and it's not it's not attainable to, to be able to think about those or to, to be able to do that, you know, to be able to target a meta that you didn't know about or uh, to have access to a list that you you just were never going to have access to for instance so um i think that's that's super important and when it comes to i guess the actual performance on the day i think it's really important so after each kind of section of the event say like the pt so after the draft section the constructed portion on day one then the draft section and the constructed portion on day two after each of those four kind of sections I personally took some time just to reflect on what happened in those. I didn't think too hard about it. I didn't want to get myself into this headspace of being of dwelling on those games and heading into the next sort of round with that still in my mind. But I did make a few notes kind of in my notebook about those those portions and what I think went well, what didn't go well, just to reflect on afterwards. And then sort of uh, a couple of days later, um, I did reflect back on some of those and, and post the event on some of those things uh, because it, you want to take the learnings away, but you also don't want to have that derail your event. You know, if you start at, say, day one, you know, take a couple of tough losses that you feel like you could have done something different in or had you prepared differently, you could have had a different outcome. Uh, those are really important learnings, but also if you let those sort of be at the center of your thought process, it's not going to go well for you. You're just going to dwell on those. And uh, at X2, you know, on day one, you're still massively in contention for for top eight. I think we saw three or four of the players in top eight were X2 after day one. So um, it's really important to, to understand that don't dwell on those things, but have them as takeaways. Yeah, I think the most important thing you can do is take it as a learning experience and uh, uh, use that to have a better experience next time. So if you do, you know, if you go there and you have a bad experience, the only answer they have is, okay, 
that's it, right? That's what happened. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Like, there's no point in feeling bad for yourself, feeling like you got unlucky. Like, screw that. Doesn't matter, right? Like, you're either going to soldier on and go to the next tournament and learn and get better, or you're not, right? And if you're not, you're going to be like everybody else, and you're probably never going to win the tournament. Like, this thing about the card games is like, it's very skill-based, yes. And some players are arrogant enough to feel entitled to the win so when they don't win they feel robbed they feel like they, they got unlucky but nobody's entitled to the win and at the end of the day it's a numbers game and you're gonna have to probably play a lot of these tournaments and it doesn't matter like the more practice you put in the more likely you are to win but there might be a long period of time where it doesn't matter you might be the hardest working player you might try the hardest you might sacrifice or you might just keep losing and yeah you might ha you can have that conversation like should i hang it up should i stop playing but at the end of the day you just got to look back you know even in the sentence you gave us had some travel difficulties okay next time fix travel difficulties get out there earlier make sure everything's accommodated before fix that and you're gonna like all you have to do is keep doing everything you can to get as many small edges as possible and then one day it might go your way but also it might never go your way which is also why being results oriented which we spoke about probably a million times this podcast is yes. just the biggest trap like you got to enjoy the journey you got to realize that you're not playing this game ultimately like the plus ev mindset is just i don't think it will ultimately lead to happiness and fulfillment and you're here to sort of experience you're traveling the world right you got to go to leo you got to travel you get to be with your friends um you get to play games right that's a great experience, experience right so it didn't go your yeah. way but you can learn a lesson from this um and you look we have one literally in the sentence travel difficulties just fix that even if some of it was out of your hand just try to make it as much in your in, in your hands next time as possible fix all that and you're just you're setting yourself up better for next time and yeah that's just how these things go there is a there is a bit of a luck aspect but there's also sometimes you're just gonna lose and you might just you might lose many many times in a row before you eventually win and that's just how it goes unless you're michael mm -hmm. hamilton then you just win all the time <laughs> uh, apparently yeah <clears throat> i just want to just uh reiterate a couple of points you just made for because i think they're actually phenomenal points this idea of like you know plus ev don't play a card game to be honest if that's what you're looking for <laughs> would be my advice yeah if you're looking at it from a purely value standpoint uh, and just reiterating back, like you say, we've talked about it many times, but the the, the process and, and not the uh, results orientation. I do think when it comes to the results, you d you do need to you know reflect back on some of those and, and t have the takeaways from that. But they can't be the be all and end all. Uh, I just don't think you can enjoy the game that way. I mean, maybe you can, and that that's cool. Maybe you can if it's it's purely results orientated. Uh, but it's probably because you're you're you know you're winning on a streak, and then when the cold streak comes, it's uh, it's going to hurt. And you know. Pairings are a thing. A little bit of variance is a thing. Uh, you know, it's not all just about the the work and the, the choices and the preparation. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, I'm not I'm definitely not saying this is you uh, for the original ask of this question, but we have somebody sort of loosely in our group that is doesn't deal with loss as well at all, especially on the day. His name is Dante Del Frisco, and. Dante will always come after his losses and talk about his bad beat story, how he got so unlucky, et cetera, et cetera. And me and me and Sasha and I, are like, oh, oh, Dante. You felt, oh, you, you deserve to win. You're entitled to that win. Oh, it's your win. Like, it's like his divine right to have that win. Absolutely not. And if, when you start thinking about it, like, it's ridiculous, right? Like, sometimes you're going to get unlucky, but that person, the other player on the other side of the board, had would sat down at the same table, played the same match, and it just turned out that they won. And that's how it's going to go. I think that enti feeling entitled to the win is just like one of the biggest traps. And I remember when someone first put it that way to me, they were like, Oh, did you feel entitled to that win? I was just like, Wow. That's a, I never a feel that way. Right? I, was like, I was like, wow, that's a really stupid way of thinking, right? Like I should never think that way. <laughs> and I think it was actually Steven from Team Covenant was asking. So he's like, oh, you felt entitled to that win? <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. And nah. <laughs> some people under the bus this morning. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Dante, Dante, the infinite salt mine. He, he, he always gets it. All right. So, hey, we got, we got one more here. It's from, uh, I think it's, is it, Michael or Michelle? I I don't know. I think it's uh, Michael, but it's spelled a bit differently. Um, this is on YouTube. He said, Commander Cook got a question here, but rolls into the mailbag. From what I heard, um, LSS wants to focus more on existing classes and talents next year. Should the focus be on talents mixing with classes that wouldn't naturally mix? Uh, for example, Draconic Guardian, Go Tall versus Go Wide, or the focus, focus on those that would. Things like, you know, Earth Brute, um, you know, the big attacks, stuff like that. Or maybe Ice Brood, like a Yeti or something. 
How do you think that these sort of talents are expanded into the current hero pool? Do you think it's stuff that's more thematic or are we going to see, like, do you think that Lightning Brute would be a good idea? Like, how crazy do you want it to be? Uh, I mean, uh, first of all, I, I think I just looked down at this. This is from Mikhail. Um, I think I think what they've done so far with trying to keep it somewhat in line with, I mean, first of all, I think law-wise it has to fit, right? So, you know, I look at Bravo Star the Show and the, the essence of Aria and Earth Lightning. Uh, that, that makes sense to me, right? I think if you start to start to move away from that, you know, like a lightning brute, what's the origin of that? I'd like to know about. I, I think initially I would like to see it probably work within the pie of what we have so far. So it expand on what they are already, ex- extend some of the strategies, introduce a couple of new strategies by virtue of having something that's similar but fits in with that, that hero already, rather than just going super crazy with it. We used to start to see clashes of, um, I guess, Law theory, uh, game fundamentals of what we're seeing from Flesh and Blood so far. Not to say that I wouldn't want to see that in the future. You know, the the Ice Brute, uh, a Yeti hero, for instance. Like, I think that could work, but you need to have the setup for those things first. Um, and I think I would like to probably just see a little bit of expansion of what we already know. So something like you look at this Royal Draconic Aurea Wizard. <laughs> what else is the subtype there? That's that's interesting because it's like. Okay, where does where does the line between warrior and wizard come into it? Like, what does that look like? Don't quite know yet. And then you think about draconic as well. I was like, wow, there's an extra spin on that. So when I actually saw that card revealed, I was like, huh, okay. And then I kind of just walked away and thought, I don't think I like that <laughs> from a design standpoint. But you know, I'm, I'm interested to see what actually comes out of it with 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 dynasty. Um, I am really interested to see a bit more of two. You know, of just like, I guess the draconic thing gives you a bit of a, you know, if you just mash two classes together, all of a sudden you've doubled the card pool. For yeah, I was going right? to ask so, that. Do you think that, I, right. yeah, my quick interjection is like, and you can answer this after it. I'm sorry that I have this, this flaw in my personality to just interject thoughts that come into my mind. But do you think that dual classes could actually exist in class constructed heroes? I don't think so. Like, I think it would just immediately be broken. It seems to, yeah, right. And so I'm also talking around circles a little bit because I'm thinking about this as we go, but yeah, I think it's too much, right? So Draconic, even even so far, we've seen the Emperor be young. Presumably, maybe Emperor is also got an adult version. But the Draconic limits the, the card pool, right? So you go, oh, look, doubling of card pool, Warrior and Wizard. And then all of a sudden, it's like, okay, Draconic, bring it back, right? <laughs> can only have can only have red cards in the deck. So you immediately cut the pool down. But you give access to a different slice than, say, Dorinthia sees or, say, uh, Kano sees a different slice. But, you know, it's still a slice that's kind of somewhere around the same amount of cards. Uh, which is really interesting. So I don't think you could have straight up. I think you need restrictions, right? Yeah, and yeah. I think you definitely couldn't touch on, say, you know, shadow, light, plus dual class like that. Now you're starting to get into uh, uh, some dangerous territory, I think, potentially. So you just look at the hero card and you got to read a paragraph as the subtext. It's just, <laughs> I think yeah. that, yeah, I think dual class, like, I think it's a really dangerous area of design, but dual classes with a deck building restraint printed on the card. Um, could be cool right it could be really cool um yeah but we'll have to see and that might be that might be the direction that they go i kind of doubt it just because it, i feel like it'd be so so dangerous for 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 balance but you know L- lss has proven that they're willing to uh test that line not just kidding <laughs> Remember when we, we first but when we first learned about like, things like soul right it's like ah oh, this makes no sense you have to put these cards like under your hero and now it's like yeah soul like what's wrong with that it's a perfectly normal mechanic um <laughs> You know, there's, there's these things that we get introduced to and we go, well, that's not really going to work, is it? And then it's, it, you know, it, it's tested. It's, you know, it's part of a grand sort of idea of, of what the game can be in a realization. So, you know, I expect to see it at work. I had a thought, you know, maybe you, you start to print restrictions on the card itself. Then you, you're just reading a novel, which is really tough and it's really hard to understand. So I think this idea of, you know, like an extra subtype is as a way of restricting things could be the most probable way that we see initial dual class heroes be balanced yeah um just a small a small anecdote before we close out <laughs> in terms of like yeah, design like that i remember traps traps and arcane rising before we kind of understood arcane rising they looked pretty good in welcome to wraith like you know defense reactions were super powerful i was like wow ranger's gonna get additional defense reactions <laughs> i was pretty hyped or was that just did they only get traps and crucible yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, so I mean, that's what I mean in Crucible. So like we had a bit of dash and stuff. Sorry, it gets all mashed up because that was COVID and like 
Arcane Rising for at least US players wasn't really a format. Uh, but I remember seeing the traps and I'm like, oh, this is pretty good. You know, Command and Conquer wasn't the format, but at least in the heavy D-React format, it looked kind of good. And then you saw the execution of traps just kind of flop. And that's kind of where I think they are until we get a new new Ranger printed. Nevertheless, that is quite that is quite the uh, <laughs> quite the tangent. Hey, why don't you close us off for the week, sir? Yeah, I think we've got no review this week, but if you do want to submit your reviews, we, we really appreciate it. It does help us uh, get out to to you know more listeners and viewers potentially. So you can go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash Arsenal Pass, leave your review on your preferred podcast platform. And uh, you know if you want to give us five stars, we won't complain. We appreciate it. That's kind of, yeah, That's I mean, that's it for the mailbag this this week. I think some really great questions there. We, we like doing these episodes because it brings to the forefront what listeners of Arsenal Pass are, are thinking about and discussing. And uh, so we will continue to do these, you know, periodically, what that period is yet to be determined by us, probably at least twice a year. We like to do these mailbag episodes as these questions kind of add up or, or we really feel like it's a great time to reach out to the community for questions. Um, good luck to all those competing at national championships this coming weekend and for the next two weeks. Uh, I think it's going to be a really exciting time to see how this meta develops. I so I mean I haven't been able to play much, Brendan. I know you've been playing more than me. I just want to leave you with the final question: Is what do you think of this potential meta so far and the enjoyability of it? Don't worry about like the the balance, etc. The enjoyability of this meta. It's tough, Hayden. That's a really tough question for because you're the thing is is like I know that. You want a simple answer, but I gotta I gotta dive into it just a little bit. So, in terms of the meta, I don't know, and the reason I don't know is because because I'm able to play Kano into people that are not my testing partners and not my friends who are going to sit there and have a miserable experience and completely waste their time, and I can just queue it up online. Um, even things like Icelander that can be pretty miserable uh, for the people sitting on the other side of the board. The fact that I can just play those matchups, the heroes that I really enjoy. I, like I said, I was going to take a multi-month break from Flesh and Blood, and I'm having more fun than I've had for a lo- in a long time, right? Um, I just, I'm having, it, it's a great time. I'm loving this meta. I don't know if, but that's the thing is when you say this meta, I don't know if I'm loving this meta, or I'm just loving the state that the game is in, because I can play games on demand whenever I want. I can play the decks that I want, and I can ultimately kind of just have fun. So I'm having a really good time with Flesh and Blood right now. Uh, but I do think that the control meta is going to be, or the control meta, quote unquote, this following meta is going to be a fun one. I do. Yeah. I want to leave that kind of, I want to just add a statement onto that for all of our listeners is that I've had those periods in time as well where I've really enjoyed the game, even though I thought the meta maybe hasn't been amazing. And a big part of that has been enjoying my sort of like playing in armories and skirmishes and things like that. And, um, you know, I know there's a lot of discourse right now about, Flesh and Blood Online and things like that. I do just want to say, don't forget your locals as well. I do just want to put that out there. Um, all right, Brendan, I'm going to sign it off. Uh, if you want to find us on Twitter, we are at BrendanAPG, Fian underscore Dale for myself. Come join in Flesh and Blood Twitter. Talk all things sort of, you know, events happening. Uh, I'll be tweeting about nationals this weekend. I'm sure, you know, once Brendan's back in country, uh, I'll be tweeting about more Flesh and Blood as well. And uh, other than that, I've been, big thank you to all of our patrons. I've been tweeting tons of Flesh and Blood. Anyway. That's actually true. I just realized that. Yeah, <laughs> I was yeah, like, yeah, I was yeah, like, especially tweeting Madman. All right. See y'all next week. Thanks for listening. See you later.